Well, we're going to come to God's Word now, so if you've got a Bible, uh, please do reach for that. If it's uh, on paper or if it's on your phone. If you need a Bible, then uh, there may be a few around if someone can come and get those to you. We're going to turn to the book of Luke. Uh, we're going to be carrying on our series uh, there. So Luke chapter 22. It's page 1057 in the Red Church Bible. So Luke chapter 22, and we're going to be reading from verse 24 to 38. Luke 22 from verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the king of, kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or is it the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you, as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, as he was numbered with transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Well, let me pray as Dan comes to bring God's word to us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. Thank you that the words in this book we hold in front of us are your words. You're the one who place the stars in the sky and you know them by name, the one who gives us each breath we take, the one who gave his one and only son to become a servant for us, to die for us, a rebellious people, that we may know life and freedom and forgiveness. You are the God we want to know more. Thank you for the preparation that Dan has put into this passage this week. And Lord God, I pray now that as Dan speaks, you would use him mightily for your glory. May he know that these words are not his words that carry the power, but yours, Father. Please open our hearts and our minds and our ears 
that we may be changed by what you have to say to us this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Thanks, James. Uh, We do keep your Bibles open in front of you as we uh, look at that passage together this morning. But there are just some events in life that change everything, don't they? I don't know, but winning the lottery seems to be one of those events. You know, often the common phrase that you hear when someone's uh, won the lottery is, nothing will ever uh, be the same again. Everything's about to change, you know, from the circumstances that you'll live in, uh, from the way that you'll then see the world, and, and from the way that others and the world will see you. Everything from that moment changes. And, and there are also other uh, life-changing events that do the same that, that we experience, you know, getting married or having a child or tasting a Krispy Kreme dinner for the first time, moving house, uh, graduating, uh, being entered into the world of work for the first time. Uh, even those times where someone we love passes away. These times change everything. And it's not just our circumstances that change often, but it's, it's everything down to even our outlook, our, our mindset that changes. Our outlook on life. The things that we value and we don't value anymore. They, they subtly begin to change after these moments, these events. Nothing is ever quite the same again. And you know, this morning I hope that when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to his crucifixion, when we come to realize what has happened on that cross, there is a sense, we'll see this morning, where nothing will ever be the same again. Nothing will ever be the same. This event is so massive, it can't help but change everything. From our mindset to the way that we look at life, ultimately down to the way that we live our lives. The cross changes everything. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples in our passage this morning. Everything will change as a result of Jesus' death on the cross. And you know, in each section that we'll be looking at this morning, uh, we'll see that Jesus, he corrects a particular misunderstanding that his disciples have. And Jesus lovingly and, and graciously explains to his disciples why it is in particular his death that is going to change everything for them. It's going to shape everything for his disciples in their lives. And so too this morning, I pray that that we leave here this morning seeing why Jesus' death on the cross is something in which we we cannot help but say, this changes everything. Nothing can be the same as a result of what Jesus has done. This one moment in history that has a monumental effect on the way that we live, the way that we see things now. Because, you know, in this, this part of Luke's gospel that we're looking at this morning, well, these are the last moments that Jesus has with his disciples um, before he sees them again after his death and his resurrection. 
Uh, last week we saw uh, wonderfully from Andy that, that Jesus, he shares this hugely symbolic Passover meal with his disciples. A meal that symbolized the judgment of God passing over his people all the way back in Exodus, thousands of years before Jesus was born. And they would sacrifice a lamb and, and that blood would be painted over the doorposts. And Jesus, he takes that meal that had been celebrated and remembered for all of those years. And he says, this is what's going to happen to me. I am the Passover lamb. I am the one that will be killed, sacrificed, so that the judgment of God might pass over each of us this morning. That we might know the love of God instead of the wrath of God. Forgiveness instead of judgment. Life instead of death. All of it summed up in that meal that Jesus shares with his disciples. And so here we are this morning. Jesus, after sharing that meal, now with his disciples only moments away from him being arrested and crucified. And this morning we've got three uh, sections to our passage this morning. The first one is misunderstanding what it means to be great. Misunderstanding what it means to be great. And you see at the start of our passage, we get the verse that just sets the scene uh, for everything that we're looking at. Verse 24, look with me. It says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. I mean, this is striking, isn't it? Jesus, he's just shared the Passover meal with his disciples. He's just told them that his body's going to be broken, his blood's going to be poured out, and that one of them is going to be the one to betray him. And Jesus said that, well, Luke records They just start arguing about which of them is to be considered the greatest. It's almost like no one has actually listened to a word that Jesus has said. And Jesus, he hears this discussion going on with his hears the arguing going on in the background, and he responds to them in verse 25. Look with me, he says, Jesus says, The kings of the Gentiles... Lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus says to his disciples, you misunderstand what it means to be great. Because there is a difference between what true greatness looks like in my kingdom and what greatness looks like in this world. He says, look at the Gentiles. Look at the world around you. Look at how people use power. How people expect other people to treat them in power. They lord it over people. They exercise authority over people. They they abuse power. They they call themselves benefactors. There's a sense in which the the world wants to be recognized, acknowledged, fame for the power and authority that they possess. And yet Jesus says, verse 26, 
but you are not to be like that. Saying that the one who rules is to be like the one who serves. It is completely, utterly, unashamedly countercultural, isn't it? And then comes the biggest punchline ever. I'm, I'm honestly, this is the biggest punchline ever. I hope we see this this morning. Because Jesus, he then uses an illustration at the dinner table. And in those days, the people that would be down would be held in greater honor. Sorry, back on the microphone, brilliant. Sorry, there we go. I'm getting too excited. Um, in those days, uh, people sitting at the table would be held in greater honor than those who would be serving the people at the table. That's how power and authority work, isn't it? It's the same today. Uh, you know, the higher you go, the more successful you go, uh, the more that, uh, well, you are served uh, rather than serving. Uh, suddenly, the higher you go now, uh, people start making you teas and coffees uh, rather than you making the teas and coffees. Uh, normally, the higher and more successful you go, people start to write your emails uh, rather than you writing your own. You serve more, you are served more than you serve. That's what Jesus, the picture of the dining table. Those who are sitting down would be held in greater honor. But here's the ultimate punchline. Here it is. Jesus, at the end of verse 27, he says this. But I am among you as one who serves. But I am among you. As one who serves. I mean, talk about a statement that changes everything. I mean, can you imagine the disciples' faces as Jesus said this? They've been arguing over who's going to be the greatest, and yet the greatest one is stood right in front of them, and he says, But I'm serving you. I mean, how humbling is that? And when Jesus is saying, I am among you as one who serves, how is it that Luke has been showing us how Jesus is serving his disciples, how Jesus has been serving his people? Ultimately, Jesus serves us by laying down his life for us. It's as his body is broken, as his blood poured out on the cross. You know, Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says, for even the Son of Man, that Son of Man we looked at last week, that one who is given all authority and power, the one who will be worshipped by everyone in this world, Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross it shapes our attitude to greatness. It shapes how we view and what it means to be great. It shapes how we lead, how we exercise authority. Because one thing's for sure, Jesus wants his people and his disciples to look like him and not like the world around. Do I think this is what Paul gets to in his letter to the Philippians? In Philippians chapter 2, at verses 3 to 11. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. 
value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you know, ultimately, just as Jesus' service and his humility led to glory, well, Jesus ends at first section acknowledging to his disciples, well, you'll get your glory. Verse 30, Jesus says, you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. A glory will come. But Jesus says greatness is not measured in being served. It's in serving. Jesus says, but I am among you as one who serves. And that verse alone shapes everything, doesn't it? I mean, I've been reflecting on just that one phrase all week. Even in our small group, we just talked about the ways in which this, our whole lives, everything will be shaped just by that one verse. What it would look like to walk into church reading that verse. But I am among you as one who serves. Because what it means is that there is no one in Jesus' kingdom who is above serving. There is no one who deserves to be served rather than serve. In other words, there's no excuse. Church isn't to be full of customers. It's to be full of servants. People loving and serving one another. Firstly, for those in leadership. But ultimately, for all of us. And you know, this verse, it challenges every ounce of pride in my heart. Because I know deep down... I long to be seen as great as the world sees greatness. I long to be treated like the world treats those who are great. And it feels so much better to be served rather than serve. It just does. And it's even harder when you serve certain people that you find hard to serve. It challenges every ounce of pride in my heart. And yet, do you know what this verse, but I am among you as one who serves, do you know what it does? It soaks our service, it soaks our heart in what has already been done for us. It fixes our eyes on the gospel and it lets what has already been done for us shape how we live. And so when I'm struggling to put aside my pride while I look to Christ... And I see how he, the most glorious king of heaven, well, he lay aside everything. And he humbled himself in a way that I I just cannot imagine 
to serve me. When I'm struggling to love and serve people that I'd rather not, well, I look to Christ. And I see that even when I was his enemy, even when I was rejecting and rebelling against him, well, he gave his life for me. He loved me when there was nothing to love. And when I struggle to serve because all the joy of serving has gone, well, I look to Jesus. And I find the joy of what's been accomplished for me through his service. The removal of my sin, no fear in death, the hope of eternal life with him forever. And letting the joy of knowing what has done, what Christ has done for me, fuel my joy into serving and loving those around. Jesus says, you misunderstand what true greatness looks like. I am among you as one who serves. And that verse just shapes everything. Well, our second point this morning as we go through our passage, our second point is misunderstanding what it takes to be faithful misunderstanding what it takes to be faithful. You see, after Jesus has spoken with his disciples, he then draws Peter aside and he begins to talk to him. And Jesus reveals to Peter that unbeknownst to him, he's in the middle of a, of a cosmic spiritual battle that he just cannot see. Uh, Jesus says in verse 31, look with me. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus, he reveals it to Peter that Satan has asked whether he can sift the disciples as wheat. It's almost that picture that Satan's asking whether he can just pick them apart bit by bit. And notice that Jesus in his prayer acknowledges that the root of Satan's attack in Peter will be on his faith. He says that your faith will not fail. And yet whilst Jesus tells Peter that this spiritual battle is about to come and he acknowledges that Peter will fall in some part, Jesus says, when you turn back, when, not if, Peter, he seems to misunderstand what Jesus is revealing to him. Peter says in verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter, he couldn't imagine that he would fall. He couldn't imagine that he would ever turn back. He almost misunderstands, he underestimates what it takes to remain faithful. He underestimates the battle he's about to face. And Jesus ends up letting them know that in verse 34. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three, three times that you know me. You see, for Peter... Jesus' arrest, Jesus' trial, Jesus' crucifixion will put him in the midst of a spiritual battle. A battle to either stand by Jesus or to turn away from him. 
the cross will change everything for Peter. Because the cross, it brings humiliation. It brings suffering. The cross brings being an outcast. And Satan's temptation to Peter is, do you really want to endure that? Do you really want to be known as someone who follows that Jesus? And you know, for us this morning, that spiritual battle that Jesus reveals to Peter that is going on, it still continues for Jesus' followers today. Uh, Peter himself would say in one of the letters that he wrote, at 1 Peter 5 verse 8, he says, Be alert and a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith. And you know, the biggest danger for Christians this morning is to believe that we're not in this battle. That this battle doesn't exist. That Satan doesn't really care about our faith. That maybe he doesn't really exist. But Jesus says to Peter, this is so real. This is so real. Don't misunderstand what it takes to remain faithful. Uh, John Piper soberly says about this spiritual battle uh, that we face, he says, Satan devotes 168 hours a week trying to deceive you. Do you really think that you can maintain a renewed mind with a 10-minute glance at God's book once a day? And yet, do you know, as we'll see later on, Peter does fall. As Jesus said, he denies ever been part of Jesus' followers. And in so many ways we fall, don't we? There are times where we realise that we've bought into the lie that Satan has told us. Where we've cherished popularity over being an outcast for being a Jesus follower. We cherish comfort rather than embracing suffering for following Christ. We cherish our sin rather than cherishing Christ himself. Do you know, I think in so many ways we can relate to the temptation to deny, Pete, to deny Jesus that Peter faced. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. And it's hard because Jesus says there's a battle going on behind it all. There's a battle we face. There's an enemy we have that seeks to derail, distract, and to destroy the faith of those who follow Jesus. And yet, do you know what's wonderful in our passage this morning? Because our passage shows us that despite all of that, there is always restoration. There is always mercy. There is always grace and forgiveness. And it's found in the one we see in our passage, the one praying for us, the one interceding on our behalf for our faith not to fail. Hebrews 4 verse 14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
In Jesus, we find not only someone who is able to empathize with our weakness, understands what we go through, but one who provides strength in the battle. One that provides grace in a time of need. And you know, in this battle that we face, the only hope, the only refuge we have, well, it's found in the one that Satan would love that we stray from. And you know, Christ, in that cross that he is going to, he made a way for every failure, every wrong, every fall to be forgiven. Like Peter, that we might be restored, we might be strengthened in our faith as we come to Jesus. And finally this morning, our third point, as we close our our passage, misunderstanding what it brings to be disciples. Misunderstanding what it brings to be disciples. See, our passage ends this morning with Jesus speaking again now to all of his disciples. And on the surface of things, the end of this passage seems to be a bit confusing. You see, he refers them back to earlier in Luke chapter 9 and 10, when Jesus sent, sent out his disciples to preach the good news and told them not to take anything with them. And Jesus asked them, and he refers them back to that moment that he was with them, and he says to them, did you lack anything when you did that? And the disciples, well, they say nothing. We lacked nothing. But now Jesus says, verse 36, he says this. He says, if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. I mean, what's Jesus saying here? Is he wanting his disciples to get ready for war? Well, no, we know that because at the end, his disciples, well, they hear what Jesus says and they find some swords lying about, and they, they tell Jesus that. They say, we found two swords. And Jesus ends the passage by saying, that's enough. He rebukes them. He says, you've misunderstood it. That's not what I want you to do. And later on, when Jesus is arrested, and his disciples do use the sword, one of his disciples strikes the ear off one of the servants who has come. And Jesus rebukes them for such an act of violence. And he heals the servant's ear. And so it's not getting ready for a fight that Jesus is preparing them for. But rather, I think the picture here is of just being ready to be prepared, ready for things to change. Because, you know, in this, in, in this section, Jesus explains, verse 37, he says, it's written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, Jesus says, I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus points them back in this section to a a promise, a prophecy written by Isaiah 600 years before Jesus was born. In Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah chapter 53 is a profound vision of this promised one who would come. And through his suffering, through his death, would bring forgiveness. Would bear God's judgment in our place. And Jesus says that that promise, over 600 years before, 
Well, it's finally reaching its fulfillment. And because it's reaching its fulfillment, Jesus wants his disciples to be ready. Ready because things are about to change. Jesus' death will change everything for them. You know, in, in Luke's second book that he writes, the book of Acts, we see what happens after Jesus' death and resurrection. And, you know, we find that these disciples did have to be ready for things to change. They had to be ready for persecution. They had to be ready for being mocked and slandered for being followers of Jesus. They had to be ready to run. They had to be ready to speak for Christ. They had to be ready to live for Christ every single day. Things would never be the same for these disciples once Jesus went to that cross, once Jesus rose from the dead. And you know, as as much as things negatively might have changed for them, the true is the same as in positive sense. You know, when we read through Isaiah 53, if you read through it, it points to the most wonderful truth that we could ever know, that God has made a way for us to be forgiven, a way for us to have peace with God. And you know, even though it speaks of suffering, even though it speaks ultimately of death, actually that chapter that Jesus points us to It speaks ultimately of resurrection, of new life. That actually this promised one, once he suffered and died, will be raised to life. And he'll be gathered with his people forever. It's no joke that the cross really does change everything. It really does change everything. It changes everything now. And it certainly changes everything in the future. The cross changes everything. And because it changes everything, Jesus tells his disciples, tells us, be ready for things to change. Don't misunderstand what it brings to be one of his disciples. And so this morning, do you know, I I really hope that we've seen through Jesus' conversation with his disciples, as he corrects their misunderstandings so lovingly and graciously, as he shows them why it is his death that will change everything, that will change their outlook on what greatness looks like, will change the way that they relate to one another, the way that they love one another, the way they serve one another. It will change the way they enter into this spiritual battle that they face the way that will change their present experience, change the way that others treat them. Or Jesus says that be ready for what a life of following Jesus means. Often humiliation, often weakness, often standing out. But you know what's amazing? is as we're preparing to look at a cross, a cross where Jesus was fully humiliated, a cross that was full of weakness, a cross that was full of standing out. Well, do you know, he's brought us the most amazing news. He has brought us peace. He has brought us forgiveness. He has brought us an unparalleled hope that cannot be matched by anything in this world. And Jesus says, that changes everything. It changes everything. Let's pray.
Our Lord Jesus, we are so humbled this morning as we see in your word that you said, but I am among you as one who serves. And Lord Jesus, you have served us not in any ordinary way, but in the most extraordinary way. You laid down your life, you took nails, you hung on a cross, being mocked and humiliated by everyone around in order that you may serve us of all people. Lord Jesus, that is truly staggering. And we worship you this morning as our King that has served us. And Lord Jesus, we ask that by your Spirit now, you would shape and fashion us in your likeness, that we would be people that love and serve each other, as you have loved and served us. Lord Jesus, would you humble us this morning? Would you get rid of our pride? And would you let our fuel for service, our fuel for love for one another, be what you have done for us? Lord Jesus, maybe we be ready this morning, this week, to be your disciples, to understand that the cross changes everything. Nothing will be the same. And Lord Jesus, that's a wonderful truth because we know that in the future we will receive something so glorious when we see you face to face and we enjoy eternity in your presence. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you and we worship you for all that you have done. Amen.